Power and Coercion, Part 2. Coercion and fear repel more people than it brings in. Totalitarian societies eventually collapse under their never-ending coercion and fear. The church failed to produce believers when some of its members used force or fear to gather followers. Short-term successes gained by fear result in long-term losses. Consider people you know who may have attempted to bully others into belief. How did that work out? Not very well, I bet. This is why people like St. Francis of Assisi are still loved today while the Grand Inquisitor of the Spanish imperial power is reviled. Side note, for the actual Catholic stance on this idea of religious freedom, read Dignitatis Humanae, a fascinating document, and spice it up with a follow-up reading of Populorum Progressio while you're at it. Those will help you understand what they're actually talking about for religious freedom. The underlying reason someone has faith makes all the difference. Forcing people into faith is like forcing a dog to read. It cannot happen. Even if the dog attentively stares at the page, he is likely only doing so in lieu of a treat for making the effort. If the dog will be beaten for not trying to read, then he is only doing it for self-preservation. If he is only staring at the page for a treat, then the brief sensual pleasure is the motivation making it worth the wait. What I'm getting at is that if faith is solely attempted for the treat of heaven or the fear of hell, then it is not really freely chosen. And this is called out very clearly in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. This is from paragraph 160. Man's response to God by faith must be free, and therefore nobody is to be forced to embrace the faith against his will. The act of faith is of its very nature a free act. God calls men to serve him in spirit and in truth. Consequently, they are bound to him in conscious, conscience, but not coerced. This fact received its fullest manifestation in Christ Jesus. Indeed, Christ invited people to faith and conversion, but never coerced them. For he bore witness to the truth, but refused to use force to impose it on those who spoke against it. His kingdom grows by the love with, with which Christ, lifted up on the cross, draws men to himself. So, to me, that is the difficult part for non-believers, to find reasons for faith without fear or force or trick or treat as the driving factor. Love must be the magnet. A magnet is a perfect metaphor for the experience of those who despise religion, as fear or force is often what repels them in the first place. Most often it was not God that repelled them, but a personal interaction or an interaction with a group of people. Someone or something attempted to force the wrong end of a magnet at them. And this never works or not for long, since it takes a lot of effort to hold two opposite poles of a magnet together, and they separate as soon as that force is released. Religious invitations act exactly like holding a magnet to metal with the wrong poles facing one another. Fear and force repels, but if you turn the magnet around so that the right field, the right magnetic field is displayed, the attraction is immediate. It just feels right. It goes together. There is no fighting or struggling because the attraction is natural and fitting. The exterior paint job we call 
good without God means really nothing by itself. And however you try to twist Jesus' words, the Gospels cannot be interpreted as supporting this idea. You can try to do it, but if you read it closely, it doesn't fit. I believe this is one of the biggest hurdles for modern people, as the new commandment of love thyself really must be conquered and knocked out to make spiritual progress. I think this is why my favorite self-help book, The Imitation of Christ, will never show up on bestseller lists since the message of humility and detachment from material goods is not what retailers and marketers want us to be considering in a consumer society. The parables that stick to me and resurface quite often in my mind are the one-liners of the treasure in the field and the pearl of great value. Perhaps I've stumbled over the treasure, or maybe I have by some lucky circumstance obtained the pearl of great value. I believe I have, and I hope and pray that this lucky stumble happened by grace. I marvel at the longevity of the story of Jesus. The same pearl and the same treasure that is found by every generation, by people who are born again, by those who turn back to God, it's always the same story. For most of my adult life, the term born again raised the hair on my neck as something to dislike and be irritated by. Seeing promise keepers in the 90s raising their hands and closing their eyes made me feel awkward because I felt they were hypocrites and actors. At the time, I felt these Christians were the very Pharisees that Jesus had come to depose. Oddly enough, when the turn happened for me, I was not even thinking about the phrase born again, but that is an accurate description of what happened since there's really no other way to describe the change. The verse in the song Amazing Grace that I was once blind but now I see, it never made much sense either until suddenly it did. And suddenly I was the hackneyed, rehashed, repurposed convert that I formerly loathed. I was one of those men like the promise keepers standing there. It's almost comical in its predictability, I suppose, and yet I'm happy that it happened to me, and I wouldn't have believed it ever could have happened, except that it did. So don't get me wrong, I am a hypocrite, a huge one. And you should really find other blogs and podcasts to listen to from more convincing, holy, and saintly types. Listen to Father Josh or Father Mike or Bishop Barron or Trent Horn, um, people who have much more wisdom. Read material from Thomas Merton or St. Augustine or Scott Hahn, not my words here. Go away. Go to them. Uh, all of my ideas have been said better by wiser and much more devout people. One concern I have is that I have turned back but not had a true interior change. While I can see things have changed, other things like pride and fear and envy and anger still run rampant. So while vices of the flesh may go away, underlying flaws of the fall remain. And just as Thomas Aquinas said, I've come to realize that I think he's right when he says the first and the worst sin of pride leads to all the others. Again, if the Garden of Eden is littered with metaphorical truth on how to live, both the literal and metaphorical reading lead to the same conclusion, which is to love God and obey him out of loving duty. 
this propensity toward pride will remain in me and everyone regardless in all of us whether we're american or chinese or white or black or tall or short i think that's one of the myths today that somehow certain people have propensity to sin while others don't the reality is we all do but the other thing is that to despair over these things is the wrong answer it's this pessimism that killed my faith the first time and if allowed it will kill it off again so to keep faith this quelling of pride and and my goal of humility really must be a daily goal it never stops the scandal of hypocrisy among Christians can cause others to loathe people of faith and I've been there I know what that feels like when those who lack faith see sinners who are trying to be Saints they roll their eyes and find it ludicrous particularly when the sinners past is an open closet of public skeletons as a result those who find faith and then pray in public say through a blog like this one or podcast like this one exactly like this one <clears throat> can cause those fallen away to stay away or worse yet cause people to leave their faith rather than come toward it the concept of the word scandal in the catechism of the catholic church is defined as not only those falls from grace that christians often have like say when a protestant preacher protestant preacher gets caught cheating on his wife or worse yet the sex abuse scandal of the church or someone stealing from the church or finances uh, being funny fraudulent things these public failures or scandals can make christianity look like a sham like a con and this is the type of scandal we are familiar with we're very familiar with but there is another kind of scandal that can be committed so the word scandal has two meanings and one the one i'm talking about before of debauchery or um, committing sins of the flesh kind of things of greed um, that one's revolting but there's one that's also equally revolting to non-christians and this is the one that turns people off today maybe even more than the fall from grace this type of scandal comes in several forms but mostly it's being righteous without humility another example of it is acting like a religious nutcase another one is obsessively discerning demons where rational expl explanation will do nicely another is speaking in tongues for attention or in general fanaticism that forgets the point of religion the point of religion of all the buildings and sacraments and liturgy and prayer is this humility before God the point is to love God to let his will be done not mine it's to be humble it's to follow his rules and to love others scandal is not just some religious person getting caught up in debauchery or drunkenness or stealing it is anything that can wedge someone's chance for faith away from God. So being overly zealous in a nonsensical way is just as scandalous. Here's paragraph 2284 from the Catechism. Scandal is an attitude or behavior which leads another to do evil. The person who gives scandal becomes his neighbor's tempter. He damages virtue and integrity. He may even draw his brother into spiritual death scandal is a grave offense if by deed or omission another is deliberately led into a grave offense so in other words if your actions are causing other people to not believe 
you're probably doing something wrong. But uh, there are certain cases where there's a lot of gray area in there too. So um, it's not quite as simple. But there are those people who are good without God, as I've said, and that are they're better citizens, they're more altruistic than I am, than many Christians are. So don't misinterpret or confuse my ability to jot down words or read from a script with holiness. Shakespeare famously said, the devil can quote scripture for his own purposes. So even if I feel transformed and changed, most of my life is still the same where I go to work every day and I overeat frosted mini wheats when I can and I carry out much of the same activities as I did before and I commit plenty of errors of the heart and I'm nowhere near where I could, should, or would like to be. As I said, pride runs amok. For anyone who would tell you that the change happens and you never feel sad or downcast again, that it's just joy, euphoria every day, that person is straight up lying. The difference, though, is that you have this transcendent hope that lifts you up and that, that this is the one thing the doubter lacks who is good without God. They can prop up work or money or relationships or bedroom conquests or accomplishments or family as a replacement lowercase g God for a while, but none of these can go the distance because they are these fleeting things of this world. The change does happen to people, and the change is real, and the change is undeniable. Many things become easier once the change happens, as there is strength and direction to be drawn constantly, especially whenever I turn back to God for help, because it's very easy to turn away even in the course of a day, even in a conversation. But God is the continual and endless vine of life that provides, and I realize that I only felt dead inside when I had voluntarily separated myself from that vine. I wasn't drinking from it. This doesn't mean there is euphoria or that enough prayer will make me rich and healthy and grant all my wishes. No, that's, that's the con game that the prosperity gospel plays. Instead, there is a sense of possibility and endurance best summed up in a John Henry Newman quote that goes like this. 10,000 difficulties make not one doubt. As I mentioned before, the day my sleepy faith was wakened, and it was a slow waking, I was suddenly reconnected to that vine of life and jolted into respiration, I guess. A fallen branch laying in the grass was somehow taken back up to the tree and revived. I would like to say that I willed this to happen, but I only willed myself to ask, seek, and knock on God's door in prayer. And I know that others had prayed for me, much like St. Monica did for her son, Augustine. God had been nudging me all along with situations and guidance, and certain people in my path illustrated such faith and goodness that I had to take notice. And still, still, somehow I managed to congratulate myself as if it was me that made all the difference. I could have broke my arm slapping my own back in self-praise. I'd forgotten how much help I had. In fact, I recently recalled how when I was fallen away from faith, I used to jokingly say to myself, help me, Jesus, literally as a joke. And I would sometimes even mockingly say the lyrics of a Carrie Underwood country song and say out loud when I was struggling, Jesus, take the wheel. 
I found that song's sentimental lyrics to be, well, ridiculous. And yet now, when I think back, I can't help but wonder if whenever I uttered those words, they were like little prayers, and the receiver of those words was taking them quite seriously the whole time and responding slowly, revealing the path back to faith in my life and helping me when I most needed it. Somehow, even when I did not believe, I still knew there was power in his name.